the optimal life. So, Barbara, take us back. Uh, how old was Kevin when he took his life? He was 29. 29. Mm -hmm. Take us back to that date. What date was that? It was August 11th, 2020. And um, when I woke up, he lived with me. And when I woke up that morning, I heard him in his room crying. And so I went in to check on him and we had our usual talk about how difficult it was for him to stop using drugs. And, you know, I gave him the usual pep talk. I mean, he, the last thing he said to me was, I'll never be able to stop using drugs. I just can't do it, mom. And then um, about 20 minutes later, I heard the gun shot in his room. Mm. You heard a gunshot. Your initial immediate reaction is what? He did it. He finally did it. That's what I just knew. And I, even though I knew that, in the back of my mind, I kept, as I ran up the stairs, I kept thinking maybe he was cleaning the gun and it went off. Maybe he just shot the gun out of anger. Maybe, you know, I had all these little scenarios. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But I knew and I found him. And he Do you to... rush up there as fast as humanly possible or are oh, you yeah. somewhat I reluctant? I flew up the stairs. I flew up the stairs. And I, I wanted to be there. Um, I know that sounds strange, but I was there when he was born. I just wanted to be there. And uh, he was already gone by the time I got there, even though it took seconds. But, um, yeah. And that vision, seeing him lying on the floor, has to be so horrific for a parent to have to live with for the rest of their lives. Yes, he was actually lying on his bed. He must have been sitting on the edge of the bed when he did it. And I, I saw it all the time in the beginning it just would enter my mind now i've gotten to the point where i don't think about it unless i choose to which i usually don't and if it does pop in my mind i just stop it and i just say no i'm not going there how and do you stop it because that's something that so many people struggle with i know it's really hard i just say you know i see it in my mind and then i just say no and i picture kevin smiling and I just go, no, I'm going to picture Kevin smiling. And it's kind of like a self-discipline thing almost. It's like something you have to force yourself to do. Mm. It gets, it's gotten easier as time's gone on um, to not see that vision in my mind. So that was the worst day of your life. I can't, I, can't there, I can't imagine there being even a close second. No, no. Um. 29 years of raising a child he, and he's your only he was your only child yes 29 years of putting blood sweat and tears into this person who ultimately uh took his life yes. i i can't imagine how you then pick up the pieces and start moving forward but before we get there because i know you have and that's become really one of your ma major missions here i, I want to go back so take us back to when Kevin started having issues. How how young or how old was he at that time? When he first started showing signs of depression, he was only nine years old. And I noticed it and I thought, oh, maybe it's just a phase. But his teacher brought it up to me, too. And I thought, wow, if we're both noticing it, this is significant. 
So I did take him to a child psychiatrist at the time. Let me just interject, Barbara. When you say you saw him experiencing depression, these types of issues, what were the things exactly that you were seeing? I saw that he didn't want to play with his friends as often. He just didn't laugh as much. He seemed a little despondent. He spent more time alone. Um, those were the signs that, that I saw. And they were abnormal for what he was prior to that? Yes. Okay. And I also thought he started to be bullied at that time because he he gained some weight. He was chubby. He had that little boy chubby thing going on. And the kids were teasing him. Mm-hmm. And I kept telling him, that's just happens in our family. Trust me, you're going to grow really tall. And he did. And he lost all that. But I think being teased and bullied was really hard on him. Okay. So he became withdrawn, yes. generally speaking. And you noticed it. And the teacher noticed it. So go ahead. You take him in to go see somebody. Yes, I taught, took him to see somebody. I did not want to put him on medication at that age, but I decided to try it myself since I'd been depressed too. I, you know, I, I could kind of relate to him. And it helped me so much that I did put Kevin on it. And it got him through the next several years. He was doing great. Um, he eventually stopped taking it. He did grow up tall and thin. And it wasn't until he was 15 and discovered drugs that uh, I realized he he was still depressed because he told me when he, the first time he did drugs, he said, mom, all my depression, all my anxiety, everything went away. And I just felt perfect. Well, I'm curious. So you they gave him what medication? Lexapro. They gave him Lexapro at nine years old. Yes. And it worked well, and he didn't have those feelings anymore. And around 12 years old, he was able to get off of it. Yes, about, yeah, about 12. And then he goes for several years and then starts feeling these probably pressures, anxieties, teenage life, all that kind of stuff. And to escape from it, he wanted to feel like he did when he was 11 and 12 on the Lexapro, and he turned to a different kind of drug. Yes, I'm just curious if looking back, does did you ever think to yourself, I wonder if had we not put him on Lexapro and maybe had some kind of more holistic approach, would he have felt the urge to turn to a, a drug or a narcotic again at 15? I've thought about that. And um, oh gosh, I just lost my train of thought. I thought about that. And I don't know if it would have made a difference. I mean, he did have counseling as well. He had counseling. Um, I don't know. Yeah, of course we don't know. But it's one of those things that you're trying to help people now because there's so many parents that are going through exactly what you went through for all those years. And I just wonder, I wonder how what, what kind of impact those drugs have on such a young child's mind. I know you were doing the right thing that you thought at the time, but... Oh, yeah, I thought I was doing the right thing at the time. And he didn't take them for that long. So I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I know that um, he, the Lexapro helped him, but it didn't completely change him. You know, it didn't make everything wonderful. It just took the edge off of feeling like everything was horrible. And when he started using drugs, I mean, first it was, you know, weed, alcohol, and just being peers, you know, all his friends were doing it, so I'll do it too. But once he got to heroin, 
that's when he went, wow, I this is the greatest feeling in the world. This is better than anything. <clears throat> and that's the problem. A lot of kids, even if they're not depressed, they try it that first time and they're like, I want to feel this again. And the next thing you know, you're not using to get high anymore. You're using so that you don't get sick. And it does not take that long of using it till you need more and more and more. And then you're at the point where if you don't have it, when you wake up, you're going to start withdrawals and you're going to be really, really sick. So at 15 years old, he quickly not only discovers booze and weed, but shortly thereafter, he goes right to one of the most extreme drugs there are, heroin. Yes. Are you taught? Did, did you know that this was happening or was it happening right underneath your eyes? It was happening right underneath my eyes for three entire months. And because I didn't even know heroin was out there. I was so naive in the beginning. I didn't know anything about it. I thought it was something from the 60s and it didn't even exist anymore. And he actually did come to me one night and tell me that, um, He'd been using for three months and he wanted to stop. So I thought, let me just interject again, Barbara, because this is so delicate and and, and so intricate. There's so many different details to this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. He's using heroin for a 90 day period. And you as the parent are not able to tell that there's been a change. I mean, that is shocking and so petrifying for me when a parent hears that. Oh, yes. I, What it is, is if you see the person right after they used, certainly you're going to notice because they're going to nod off. They're going to be going like this. Um, But I didn't see him right after he used. I just saw him maybe an hour or two after he used, and he seemed perfectly fine. He wasn't acting any different. He was actually in a better mood. He looked the same. There were no external signs that I could see. Um, I did suspect something was going on because he was staying out later and later every night um, and then he would sleep more. But those are the only two signs I had. Did you ever have the talk with him when he was in his early teenage years, 13, 14, leading up to 15? Did you have those talks with him about drugs, about alcohol, the risks? Yes, absolutely. Um, they they go to their uh, classrooms at, I think it's fourth grade. They do the D.A.R.E. program still. And he came home that day and he said, there was a cop there with this, all these things that you use to do drugs. And there was this needle and it was really cool. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Kevin, that is not cool. And that's when I started talking to him about it. And anytime I read an article in the paper about a teenager getting killed in a drunk driving accident, I would tell him about it. I tried those scare tactics. Um, And we were very open. You know, he told me the first time he drank, he told me when he's tried weed. And so he comes to you 90 days into this addiction Mm-hmm. and says, Mom, I need to stop. I have something to tell you. I've been using heroin. Yes. Does, do, do, how does a parent react to that message? Do you have chills go down your spine? What was your immediate thoughts? I was sound asleep when he came up because it was 2 o'clock in the morning and his girlfriend was with him. And I just, I couldn't believe it at first. I was like, what are we, what are you talking about? Um, I was, I was shocked. I was just, I felt sick to my stomach and I immediately wanted to go into action. Okay. What do we do? How do we fix this? Um, 
he said, and I was so naive, I didn't know that he couldn't just quit. He said, I'm going to quit. It's over. I'm not going to do it again. I said, okay, good. I, I felt relieved, but I kept watching him. And it didn't take very many weeks after that, that he got arrested for the very first time for possession. Possession so of heroin. Possession of heroin. So you were watching. You thought you can keep an eye on it. You thought you would be able to visibly see that he would be using. And your ignorance at that time um, yes. was exactly what prevented you from being able to take better action. Because he was using it underneath your, right behind your back for 90 days. You didn't notice yes. anything. And you still thought, okay, now that I know I could watch for signs, didn't work out that way. No, it didn't. Um, you know, some things, if you smell alcohol in someone's breath or marijuana, or you see them acting differently, meth, I mean, meth is very obvious if you're using, but um, I just, I didn't know. And that is my number one recommendation to parents. You've got to educate yourself from the very beginning. And the most dangerous thing you can say is not my kid because it happens in all walks of life to all kinds of kids no matter how much you talk to them it's a possibility it's a possibility that they may do that and in today's world with fentanyl it is so much more critical to to keep talking to your kids so he gets in trouble and then uh, I, I mean how do you what what does this journey start to look like for you as the parent and for Kevin as the user? What what happens? It looks like a nightmare. Um, the first time he went to jail, they did they didn't charge him. They gave him a program, so he went to a ninety day program. And I was naive again, and I thought, you know, all these other people have been in here two or three times. Kevin's only going to have to go once, and that'll be it. <laughs> Life will be good again. Well, he ended up going to at least 15 rehabs in his time. Um, we started living, you know, he started stealing from me, stealing from other people. He started getting in and out of jail, in and out of rehab. Um, he became so depressed. It was just an ugly nightmare. That's a lot of that is in my book that I wrote, but it, it's a nightmare. You live in fear. Every day I'd wake up and think, is this the day he's going to overdose and die? And he did overdose many times. He was on life support twice. Um, he almost had his leg amputated from abscesses from shooting up in his muscles when he ran out of veins. I mean, it's a real nightmare. And so many parents are living with that and loved ones. <clears throat> so it just changed my entire life. Yeah. What about the relationship? I, I would imagine that there had to be some really tumultuous times between the two of you. Cause you as the parent are trying to, you want to shake this son of yours and, yes. and make him see things and, and clean up. And he's pushing back and pushing away or running away and doing different things that he shouldn't be doing. Um, but then at some point I would also imagine that, you start getting so scared as the parent that you're going to be the cause of this person's demise. And that's got to be a very, very tricky dilemma and battle that you're fighting with yourself on the daily. How do I handle this person? How do I handle my son? I don't I talk, dig into that for us. Talk about the, the dilemma and the internal conflict that you might've had with yourself. Um, well, I, I went to Al-Anon because every, 
single person from police officers, doctors, friends, everybody tells you go to Al-Anon. So what's, I did, what's uh, Al-Anon? Oh, I'm sorry. Al-Anon is for family members of alcoholics or addicts. And I went to a parents group specifically. So every person in that room, it's like a, it's a 12 step meeting. And um, every single person was dealing with the same thing. And a lot of parents felt that the only way to help their child was to kick them out of the house and, you know, no ties to them at all and let them hit bottom and then they would get better. Um, <clears throat> that didn't work for me. I tried kicking them out a couple times and I watched how things got so much worse. I, I didn't lose contact with them because I didn't want to. I did not want to lose contact with them. We were super close. And yes, we have those tumultuous moments. Um, but I think for us, more than arguing, we we cried together more than we argued together. We would just um, cry and I would hold him. And he got to the point where he was being, using meth and heroin. So then he was paranoid a lot of the time. But internally, I had to eventually just follow my gut for what was best for my son. Now, it didn't help. And he is no longer here. And I, you know, I had to deal with that. Um, but I didn't allow myself to feel guilty or blame myself. Because if I did that, I wouldn't be able to move forward. I would just be useless. I would just you know, crawl in a hole and not even want to come out if I blamed myself. So I convinced myself that it was not my fault, that all the mistakes I made were made in love. Um, I, yeah. Hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it does. It was it hell. Does. It to was an hell. Extent. Um, have you cried every day since he's passed? Or does there come a in point the in the beginning? I cried every day. The, the first four days, I didn't even, I couldn't even speak from screaming the day he died. But yes, I'd say I cried every day for the first year, maybe a little longer. And then it slowed down. And I noticed, wow, I haven't cried in three days. But there's never a moment I'm not, he's not in my mind. He's just constantly, I'm constantly aware of the fact that he's no longer here. It's like something that's within me. Um, I'm never not aware of him. Well, I have his face on my arm <laughs> and I have his ashes around my neck, but I'm just constantly aware of him. Yeah. I, this is, this is, it's so deep, but I, I do have to ask, um, is there some moments that you have over since he's passed where as devastating and as sad as it is that you think to yourself there's a little bit of a sense of relief like i don't have to worry now about what trouble my son may be getting in like as as sad as it is that you've lost the person that you love probably more than anything in this world right. there is also the instability of the emotional instability daily of you never know what to expect is there some relief that you have as a parent at least not having to carry that burden Yes, there is, because every day I would worry that he was going to die, and I never have to worry that again. I never have to worry that. 
all the stress, the fear, the worry, everything I had for all those, it was 14 years, 14 years was gone. And I didn't notice that it was gone until probably about three, three or four months into the loss that I realized um, I felt different. It's like I had this energy, this desire. It was like I was, something was cleared out in my mind and I realized that's what it is. I don't have to worry anymore. And what am I going to do with myself now? And that's when I decided to write the book. And um, since then, I've written another book, one on grief. It's coming out next month on the 11th, the the day that it'll be his three year memorial day. Hmm. Um, So yes, and the answer to your question, it sounds terrible to say that. But yeah, it's given me more energy. And it's taken away that darkness i was living in for so long yeah yeah of course my heart is broken so i have to deal with that but sure um back to the focus group the the 12 step group that you joined you did mention how some parents were able to say you got to hit the road Mm -hmm. uh someone that's listening to this right now that's going through the same thing i know it was hard for you because that wasn't your approach you wanted to you wanted to be nearby you didn't want to disown kevin um but there are some times where it sounds like these families in order for them to be able to move forward with their own lives they've got other children they've got grandchildren they've got who knows right they have a lot of things and they have exhausted every avenue for years and years and years are there those situations barbara where parents are forced to absolutely say enough's enough we're basically disowning you until you clean up your act? Um, I would definitely say there, in those situations, especially if there's other children, you uh, take, taking them out of your home is definitely a necessity um, just for safety. I mean, sometimes people get violent. Uh, Kevin got violent. I was never afraid of him, but he would punch holes in the wall. But I just can't agree with cutting them off completely i would still want to communicate with them to tell them i love them to talk to them but not mention drugs not mention rehabs not mention getting better just to say how are you um that's very difficult too because most likely they're going to want money and you know your conversations aren't going to be that good but i would never want my child to think i wasn't there for them if they needed me i just Mm. could not do that yeah, that's uh, that's got to be such a tough situation for families where you're at that it's, breaking point. Like we've done it, yeah. we can't do it anymore. We can't. It's very do it. hard, and it's an individual family situation. Everybody's yeah. different. I would like to dig into to the the uh, some of the signs that parents should be looking for because uh, heroin could be such a nasty addiction. And eventually, you could only hide it for so long. So what are some of the common signs that a parent should be looking for in their child? Um, hey, this may be a red flag that this this my child is actually using. Um, the number one thing is the nodding off. Because actually, after they use for a while, they're going to be tired. And they will literally like start nodding off. And fall asleep sitting up or the hooded eyelids like they look like they're going to fall asleep 
Um, one thing, depending on if you smoke it or inject it, if you smoke it, you're going you're gonna to notice your child's fingernails and fingertips are black. If, they, if they're using black tar heroin, um, that's all they have in California. So I don't think that would be an issue if you were in the East Coast, but um, black smudges around the house. Um, just what about behaviors? What type of behaviors? Behaviors, we just when being despondent, sleeping more, their hygiene goes downhill. You know, they may not be showering as often, um, staying out really late, having phone calls in the middle of the night and then disappearing and then coming back and do they have uh, uh, commitment and, and reliability issues? Um, yeah, that's that's a problem too. Kevin, that wasn't too big of a deal for Kevin. He always seemed to be able to get up and do whatever he was supposed to do. But because um, I've heard I've heard from other people that one of the things that drives them crazy with a user is that they'll promise you everything, and then they'll no show. Oh yeah, that does happen. That mm-hmm. does happen. And they're no showing because what they need to go- too high or they're busy. Well, here's what happens. You wake up in the morning after you've been using for a while, you wake up and the first thought is, how am I going to get money to buy my drugs today so that I don't get sick? Because your very probably- first thought, that's the only thing that enters your mind. Yeah. And I've talked to so many people. So many, all his friends are very open to me. I've talked to, and I still have friends that are using that, um, we're his friends. But anyhow, that's your thought. Okay, do I have money? If I don't, how am I going to get money? What can I sell? What can I steal to sell? Um, what kind of deal can I make with my dealer? Maybe if I bring him a new customer, he'll give me some for free. Uh, maybe if I sell a little for him, he'll give me some. There's all these different ways. Um, there's, you know, uh, selling your body, all kinds of things. So then once you get your money, You've got to connect with your dealer. You got to meet up, do the exchange, and then you're set for the rest of the day. And if you if you can make it last long, then <laughs> that's pretty rare. But you know, sometimes he'd be able to make it last for a few days. But normally, it was almost a daily thing that that's what he had to do. Playing Monday morning quarterback, looking back on those all those years really from nine years old till 29 years old. Uh, what, what do you wish you would have done differently if anything? Well, one thing I wish I would have done differently is I was a single parent through this whole thing. And one of the main reasons for Kevin's despondency and just being depressed was that he didn't have a dad. All of his friends had two parent families and I wish I would married somebody <laughs> that would have been a good father. And there was someone in my life. And I, I wish I would have done that just to see if maybe that would have made a big difference in his life. If he had that father figure that he longed for and some siblings, you know, that's one of my regrets. Um, that's the main one. I did. Is there anything you wish you would have done differently yourself, Barbara? I wish I would have educated myself from the minute I found out instead of naively thinking, okay, we're going to get through this. This is just, yeah. But this was back, this was quite a few years ago, like 17, 18 years ago. And today it's much more out there. People are talking about it. There's so much more online that you can learn. Um, But one thing I have to say, because it's so important is that 
heroin is rare now. Everybody's using fentanyl. People are using fentanyl for the last couple of years of his life. That's all he used mm. because it was cheaper and it got you higher and it lasted longer. So he was knowingly using fentanyl. A lot of people are. And I think people don't think that that's possible because they they hear about the one pill kills and, and all that. You really have to know what you're doing to do fentanyl. But a lot, uh, everyone I know that is, was a heroin user is using fentanyl now. That's just what what's out there. What's something that you should never say to a grieving person? There's a lot of things you should never say. That's what my whole second book about. It's it's called Talk to Me, I'm Grieving. And um, the number one thing I say to people is that it's not about you. When you're talking to a grieving person, please focus on the fact that they are grieving. Don't say something like, oh, yeah, I know how you feel when my mom died. And it's not even your, it's my son died. It's not my mom, it's my son. And you don't even have a child. Why are you saying you know how I feel? Um, at least, anything that starts with at least dismisses what you're feeling. So, well, at least you have other children. At least you can get remarried. At least he was really old. At least they were really young and you didn't know them that well. I mean, there's crazy things people say. So, so for the first thing that you should not say is try to make the grieving person feel better by almost minimizing the the tragedy Absolutely. by trying to point to a greater tragedy somewhere else. Okay. Absolutely. Um we want our grief to be acknowledged most for most people I know want their grief to be acknowledged. But especially in child loss, your entire world has changed. You are never going to be the same person again. You are devastated on a daily basis and we want people to know that so that they can have some compassion, maybe be a little more patient with us, um, not just write us off. That happens a lot, too. There's a lot of abandonment because people are very uncomfortable around uh, grieving parents, especially, but any type of grief. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, let's get we're close to finishing it up you've mentioned the book it's called kevin's choice we've linked it here in the show notes anyone wants to learn more purchase barbara's book uh you can go to the link in the show notes it's available everywhere amazon of course um talk to us a little bit about the book kevin's choice we know it's I, about his journey and mission who should be I, consuming this type of uh material I would recommend it to any parent who wants to learn about what drug use looks like and what it does to a child. And I also talk about how difficult it is to get mental health care in there. Um, just all the things we went through and it paints a really, I got really raw. I got really honest and I, I shared the things I did that I questioned. I shared the things I did that helped and I shared what Kevin was going through from his perspective. So I think it's a book for anyone who wants to understand what a parent goes through or what the person is going through when they have substance use disorder. Well, you, you help people with grief. That's been, as we mentioned at the beginning, this has become your mission. Yes. And you're helping people that have suffered grief, depression, the substance use disorder, drugs. 
someone that's grieving the loss of a loved one, what should they do? It's, if it's fresh out the I know a family here in town who actually recently lost a young child. Where do they go? What's the first step? <laughs> what kind of hope do they have moving forward? I think for me and for many people I know, even though it's difficult, is to find a support group of parents or whatever the case may be, love if it's a spouse, but in my case, parents that have the similar loss. I go to a support group for people who have lost to overdose or suicide. Um, there are parent groups. The, the compassionate friend is something to check out. They have groups for every type of loss you can imagine. And that's all they do is have grief support because within that group, you will find someone that understands your best friend isn't going to understand. Your mom isn't going to understand your husband. Maybe no one will understand except the people in that group. And it brings so much comfort just knowing that, okay, when I need to talk, I can talk to them. Because friends don't often want to hear about it. I've learned to not talk about Kevin too much because I can see the discomfort in people. Mm. But I know I can talk to those friends any time of the day or night, and they can call me too. So that would be the number one thing I would suggest in, is not to hold it in, to find somebody else that understands what you're going through. And um, I also, there's a book I recommend to everyone. It's called It's Okay Not to Be Okay by Megan Devine. And as far as I'm concerned, that is the best book I've ever read because it explains what grief feels like and that it's okay. It, it takes you on this ride and you never know on a, an hourly basis how you're going to feel. But that book really helps you understand grief. No, that's that's beautiful. And you're definitely helping people. Um, I'm so. sure that that's got to bring you so much joy to try to help some of these people that are suffering or have suffered from similar uh, tragedies. So uh, continued blessings to you. Continue doing the good work. Kevin's Choice, we've linked it in the show notes. Barbara, where else do you want people to find you? Website, social media, anything like uh, that? Yes, my website is barbaralegere.com. So it's my first and last name.com. My new book is on there, which I think is going to help people support others through grief. And that's Talk to Me, I'm Grieving. Talk to Me, I'm Grieving. And all my social links and all that stuff is on there too. Beautiful. And I so love to hear from people. So if anybody ever has a question or wants to talk about something, my email is there and I, I read all my email and answer. Uh, we, we'll link it up in the show notes, barbaralegere.com. Kevin's Choice is the book. And um, wishing you nothing but happiness moving forward and continued blessings to you. Thank you so much, Nate. I appreciate it.